was November 20th, 1934. Louis Efrat's coverage of a wrestling event at Madison Square Garden began on page 29 of the New York Times with the headline, Londis Conquers Marshall on the Mat. Famed heavyweight champion Jim Londis defeated Everett Marshall in a match that lasted over an hour. But Londis retaining the title was not the big news. Efrat's framing of the bout as an exhibition, that was the big news. The most important newspaper in the biggest city in the country outed pro wrestling as a predetermined fake. It was a thrilling encounter, and fans who turned out for the benefit program witnessed one of the finest exhibitions of wrestling of the current season, Efrat wrote. At least his account came with a positive review of the show. The New York Daily News was not so kind. The day before the match, the tabloid ran a stinging headline. Londis and Marshall meet at the Garden tonight for the 26th time. Score, Londis 26, Marshall 0. Both the Times and the Daily News were riding the coattails of the New York Daily Mirror, the paper that originally broke the story about the counterfeit grappling so popular across the city. The story of how pro wrestling's dirty little secret came to be exposed had all the elements of a good television angle. Power, greed, betrayal, and revenge. It all started in 1932, when rifts between Londis, an international star, and Jack Curley, the most powerful promoter in New York, turned the industry upside down. Naturally, the dispute was about money. The wrestler wanted more, and the promoter thought less. When Londis's demands were not met, the popular champion abruptly left Curley's New York promotion and went into business for himself in the Midwest. Without the top draw to headline the garden, business in New York plummeted. Jack Curley was, above all else, a sound businessman. After all, it was his hard work and intuition that popularized pro wrestling in the Big Apple in the first place. He'd promoted wrestling since the early 1900s and was instrumental in helping Frank Gotch become the first national star in 1910. Twenty years later, business was booming in New York and elsewhere. Booking offices were established around the country as enthusiastic promoters carved out a piece of the action for themselves. But the dispute between Curley and Londis threatened everything in New York. So Curley did what all good businessmen do. He compromised. He and Londis worked out their differences. And before long, the great champion was back at the garden. So were the fans. But the profound effects of the brief separation gave Curley pause. Nothing was in place to prevent a performer like Londis from holding a promoter hostage in the future. It was a threatening gap in the power dynamic between promoter and performer. If other performers were to leverage the power of their labors, it could pose a serious problem and cost serious money. Shortly after Curley reconciled with Londis, the shrewd promoter went to work to recalibrate the balance of power back in his favor. He organized a meeting of the top promoters around the country. Together, they formed a trust agreement like the original godfathers of the early mafia, the promoters established an unofficial commission. They agreed to coordinate their respective booking offices and share the profits from their national efforts. Additionally, the new trust agreement would harness their collective booking powers and prevent performers from playing one promoter against another. The benefactors of Curley's trust agreement included other forefathers of the pro wrestling industry, like Toots Mon, the innovative Midwesterner whose slam-bang style laid the groundwork for the modern in-ring style we know today. Ray Fabiani, who controlled Philadelphia, and Paul Bowser, who controlled Boston. But one man left out of the agreement was Jack Pfeffer. Pfeffer was born in Warsaw, Poland, 
before emigrating to the United States in 1921 as part of the post-World War I European exodus. A short and slim man with jet black hair and a thick mustache, Pfeffer loved the opera and was drawn to theater and the performing arts at a young age. His spirited personality and flair for the dramatic were a natural fit for the wrestling business. In the mid-1920s, already the manager of a touring acting company, Pfeffer became the manager of several European wrestlers, who he successfully promoted as exotic challengers for various American champions. Pfeffer's success as a manager eventually led to a budding relationship with Jack Curley. By the end of the decade, Pfeffer was among the few in Curley's inner circle, as they rode the wave of pro wrestling's golden era with their cash cow, Jim Londis, leading the way. In the 1930s, Curley's health began to deteriorate, and Pfeffer quietly positioned himself to take control of the New York promotion behind the scenes. The costly rift between Curley and Londis proved as good a time as any for Pfeffer to implement those plans. Pfeffer sided with Londis and abandoned Jack Curley. But Curley wasn't the type to accept defeat, and the wily businessman orchestrated a peace agreement Pfeffer didn't count on. With Londis and Curley back together and the new trust agreement in place, Curley made sure Pfeffer was left out in the cold as punishment for his betrayal. Ostracized from the newly formed trust, Pfeffer was left with no move to play. That's when he phoned Dan Parker, the sports editor of the New York Daily Mail. Jack Pfeffer was the first high-profile wrestling insider to spill the beans on the real inner workings of the business. In 1937, sports writer Marcus Griffin expanded on Pfeffer's revelations in his book, Fall Guys, The Barnums of Bounce. Griffin penned in great detail how matches were safely performed, the secret language used by wrestlers and promoters, and the methods wrestling's trust used to create angles and draw millions of dollars across the country. Fall Guys perfectly captures most every aspect of the pro wrestling storytelling construct as it exists today, some 85 years after it was first published. It's impossible to say Griffin's book or the various newspaper stories didn't hurt the business in New York and other cities. But the truth of the matter is most of the backlash came from angry journalists who felt deceived after giving the industry such valuable coverage the promoters used to their advantage. Sports writers stopped covering events, and the visual nature of the medium limited radio broadcasts. That abrupt lack of coverage certainly had an effect on live attendance. In 1938, an event in Madison Square Garden drew less than 5,000 people. It would be the last wrestling event held in the Garden for many years. A spiteful victory for bitter journalists with inflated egos and fragile sensibilities. While Jack Pfeffer's willingness to shine a light on pro wrestling's dark secret is historically significant, it was hardly the first time the industry's legitimacy was called into question. Similar stories can be found in archives of dozens of newspapers dating as far back as 1859. As it turns out, pro wrestling's dirty little secret was never really much of a secret at all. Many in the media suspected it or outright said as much prior to the 1934 stories. As for the paying customers, the fans, well, most of them didn't care. A 1931 story in The New Yorker tackled the subject of wrestling as legitimate sport. Who cares if they're fixed? The show is good, said one fan interviewed for the piece. Pro wrestling is, first and foremost, a storytelling platform. Wrestling is driven by drama, not competition. The drama pillar of the pro wrestling storytelling construct is what breathes life into characters and creates compelling interpersonal conflicts. 
It is the connective tissue that binds the hero and heel pillars together to form a coherent narrative. Drama, not competition, is how the tangible stakes of a story are created, and how the emotional investment of the audience is ultimately galvanized. From Wrestling With Art, my name is Barry Hess, and this is The Four Pillars, a four-part series exploring the fundamentals of the pro wrestling storytelling construct. This is part three, Shakespeare, not sport. The Wrestling With Art podcast is distributed by Anchor, powered by Spotify. Visit anchor.fm slash wrestlingwithart to find episode listings, learn more about the show, and send feedback on this episode and others. You can donate to the show using the support tab on the homepage. Help fund the hours of research, writing, and editing it takes to produce the show with a donation as small as 99 cents. That's anchor.fm slash wrestlingwithart. The greatest myth about pro wrestling is the idea that the audience requires the illusion of legitimacy as its guiding light. It's a myth pro wrestling's most vocal detractors attempted to exploit for decades, and one promoters foolishly believed almost as long. Even after the inner workings of the wrestling business were exposed, most every promoter of the 20th century refused to admit what everyone already knew. Kayfabe. But like the actions inside the ring, kayfabe was never real, no matter how often promoters and performers convinced themselves otherwise. The more those inside the industry clung to a dogmatic adherence to kayfabe, the more critics outside the industry attempted to derail it. Everything that makes pro wrestling compelling performative art, the athleticism, the excitement, the drama, all of it subjugated by this vexing game of cat and mouse for far too long. You need only look at the examples set by Fritz von Erich and Vince McMahon in the early 1980s to understand how truly worthless kayfabe actually was. In 1980, von Erich was a gruff middle-aged Texan. The former wrestler turned promoter ran world-class championship wrestling out of Dallas with an iron fist. McMahon was the cocky young Turk assuming control of his father's New York territory around the same time. He was never a wrestler, but the brash son of pro wrestling royalty had big plans to reimagine what the pro wrestling industry looked like. These two men of different backgrounds and different generations had one very important thing in common. They both understood the value of storytelling was worth more than the cost to maintain kayfabe. In 1981, Von Erich signed a television deal with the Christian Broadcasting Network, owned by the famed televangelist Pat Robertson. Through Robertson's state-of-the-art production company, the world-class TV product came to redefine what pro wrestling looked and felt like on television. Executive producer Mickey Grant, who had no prior wrestling experience, was instrumental in designing the groundbreaking format. His creative vision, largely influenced by the cinematography of the 1975 film Rocky, leveraged technology and an emphasis on the drama of pro wrestling storytelling. Hard cameras were staged around the arena to offer a variety of fixed shots during the show. At the same time, 
Cameramen with handheld units were placed at ringside to capture action up close and personal. The ringside cameras gave Grant the ability to put his television audience inside the ring with the performers. Tighter shots could highlight the musculature of the athletes or lock in on a wrestler's facial expressions as he sold the pain of a hold. The intensity and physical drama of the matches instantly increased. The show also reimagined how performers communicated with the audience. Personality profile segments, creative vignettes replaced straightforward promos. A duck hunt on the Von Erich family ranch, or a trip to the gym where the great Kabuki practices martial arts techniques, gave depth to the characters. Other vignettes were more story-driven, like Jimmy Garvin laboring on the Von Erich family ranch after losing a match that required him to serve as a ranch hand for the day. Ironically, the more performative the vignettes were, the less the wrestlers themselves came off like performers. Likewise, produced interview segments inside the locker room or even in an office setting allowed the audience to experience the characters outside the context of a normal wrestling show. Characters had real personalities, which in turn added to the drama of the struggles inside the ropes. These innovative ideas reshaped the way the audience absorbed the promotion's characters and stories. But such innovation did not come without risk. Implementing such a large-scale production required Von Erich and his small staff to open the doors of the territory to outsiders. That meant breaking kayfabe. If Grant and his crew were going to frame key moments in a specific way, then they needed to know what was coming, when it was coming, and why it was important. It's fair to say, if other promoters of the day had been forced to choose between such a lucrative TV deal or maintaining kayfabe, almost all of them would have turned down the deal without thinking twice. All it would take was one member of the crew going to the press to single-handedly kill the business. Or so the backward thinking of the time dictated. Von Erich, though leery of breaking pro wrestling's sacred code, ultimately chose in favor of the deal and reaped the benefits of an internationally syndicated TV product. At a time when territories were going bankrupt up and down the state, World class was a cash cow. Money was also the key driving factor for Vince McMahon, spending it rather than making it. The brash impresario was through adhering to restrictive gaming commission regulations and paying stiff taxes associated with state-sanctioned athletic competition. For decades, various state governments raked in millions in revenue generated from pro wrestling events held within their borders. What choice did the promoters have? The only way to free themselves from the tax burden was to admit their product was entertainment and not sport. And nobody would dare do that. But that's exactly what Vince McMahon did. That she said, it is now official. Wrestling is not really wrestling. That's right. The World Wrestling Federation recently told New Jersey lawmakers that when their boys, wrestlers like Hulk Hogan and the Iron Sheik battle it out in the ring, it's just entertainment, an exhibition. In other words, the matches are fake. So why would the World Wrestling Federation suddenly announce that this is entertainment? The answer is indeed money. The WWF says entertainment should not be regulated here in New Jersey or anywhere else. And with no regulation, that could mean fewer taxes to pay and hence more money in their pockets. 
In the U.S., 27 state athletic commissions regulate pro wrestling, which means promoters and wrestlers must be licensed, matches must be approved by the state, a doctor must attend each event, and every wrestler has to have a physical. In return, states charge a 5% gate tax, and some collect another 5% tax on closed-circuit broadcasts. In choosing to free himself from what amounted to little more than government blackmail, McMahon understood what far too few of his contemporaries refused to admit. The audience didn't care if a performer's intentions were authentic or artificial. They only cared if they were compelling. That sentiment was true in the 1930s, was true in the 1980s, and it remains true in 2022. Today, kayfabe is dead as a doornail. Not surprisingly, this reality era of sorts coincides with a renaissance of pro wrestling journalism. Unlike their highbrow predecessors, modern publications, both print and digital, cover the business and performative aspects of pro wrestling, without condescending undertones or stereotypical cheap shots. It's tempting to use the dichotomy between pro wrestling and pro sports as a basis for critique, but doing so fails to accurately recognize what pro wrestling is really about. Pro sports are about winning and losing. Pro wrestling is not at least not in the same sense as the National Football League or the Ultimate Fighting Championship. It's all about the drama. Pro wrestling is a modern day version of Shakespeare, not sport. Ben Johnson was a 17th century poet and playwright. He also penned the preface of Shakespeare's first folio, a collective work published seven years after the Bard's death in 1616. Perhaps no one has articulated the greatness of William Shakespeare more precisely than Ben Jonson. Quote, he was not of an age, but for all time. End quote. Over 400 years later, Shakespeare remains as relevant as ever, proof his work was indeed timeless as Jonson suggested. His broad range of influence goes well beyond the spectrum of literature, penetrating everything from the stages of Broadway to modern cinema and music. Shakespeare was essentially a promoter, the purveyor of compelling stories. He was a businessman, and stories were his business. As part owner of the Globe Theatre, he wrote the kind of stories that would fill his theatre and in turn make money. In that respect, he was also the world's first great booker. Shakespeare's stories quickly set a hook, engaging the audience with themes like ambition, revenge, love, and redemption. His characters were often larger than life, and forced to navigate compelling situations and complex relationships. Those same dramatic elements are also paramount in pro wrestling. Both Shakespeare and pro wrestling rely on unique characters, dramatic language, and progressive story advancements to create a tangible emotional investment in the outcome. It's noteworthy to point out that while today Shakespeare is widely viewed as the greatest dramatist in the history of the Western world, his work was highly criticized by many of his contemporaries, including Ben Jonson. Shakespeare's focus on basic human themes and emotions made his stories transparent. The audience could easily identify the heroes and the villains. The simplistic structure and language used by Shakespeare was oft criticized to lack nuance and sophistication. Ironically, this too is a common criticism used against pro wrestling storytelling. Shakespeare relied heavily on the use of monologues and soliloquies to secure emotional investment in his characters. 
These dramatic proclamations or intense inner thoughts helped the important characters come to life. The art of the promo takes the place of a monologue in pro wrestling storytelling. A wrestler's true personality and the drama of their struggle comes to life through these compelling speeches and declarations. What a wrestler says into the microphone, or through the lens of a hidden camera, breathes compelling conflict into a story. Take for instance the rivalry between Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. On paper, the feud is a basic story of high-stakes championship wrestling. The drama is limited to two men simply competing for one title. It's only after the words of both characters penetrate the narrative that the true drama of the rivalry comes to life. Like a conquering monarch, Flair is an egotistical heel who flaunts his wealth and power. The NWA heavyweight title on his shoulder takes the place of a gaudy crown. Rhodes, on the other hand, is an inspiring common man, a man comfortable among the people rather than presiding over them. He struggles to defeat a dishonest foe that stacks the deck against him, yet he speaks truth to power, and the people love him for it, even if he fails. That is the power of dramatic promo. Here is the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, and Dusty, your fans welcome you back, man. First of all, I would like to thank the many, many fans throughout this country that wrote cards and letters to Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, while I was down. Secondly, I want to thank Jim Crockett Promotions for waiting and taking the time because I know how important it was. Starcade 85, it is to the wrestling fans, it is to Jim Crockett Promotions. And Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, with that weight, got what I wanted. Ric Flair, the world's heavyweight champion. I don't have to say a lot more about the way I feel about Ric Flair. No respect, no honor. There is no honor among thieves in the first place. He put hard times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. You don't know what hard times are, Daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work. They got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years. They give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, Daddy. That's hard time. That's hard time. And Ric Flair, you put hard times on this country by taking Dusty Rhodes out. That's hard time. And we all had hard times together. I admit, I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My heart is just a little big. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. And there were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other one's right here. Nature Boy Ric Flair. The world's heavyweight title belongs to these people. I'm going to reach out right now. I want you at home to know my hand is touching your hand for this gathering of the biggest body of people in this country, in this universe, all over the world. Now, reach it out because the love that was given me in this time, I will repay you now because I will be the next world's heavyweight champion on this hard time blues. Dusty Rhodes, Tour 85, and Ric Flair, 
Nature Bar. Let me leave you with this. One way to hurt Ric Flair is to take what he cherishes more than anything in the world. That's the world's heavyweight title. I'm gonna take it, I've been there twice. This time when I take it, Daddy, I'm gonna take it for you. Let's gather for it. Don't let me down now, cause I came back for you, for that man up there that died 10, 12 years ago and never got the opportunity to see a real wolf champion. And I'm proud of you and thank God I have you. And I love you. Love you! Whether intentional or not, a number of pro wrestling characters and stories draw striking parallels to Shakespeare. The alliance between Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage that disintegrated in 1989, for example. Savage's jealousy over Miss Elizabeth led to the feud that culminated at WrestleMania V. Shakespeare's version of the story is Othello. Two great heroes and friends, Othello and Iago, transformed into bitter adversaries through Iago's jealous manipulation and resentment. Bret Hart's heel turn in the early stages of the Attitude Era is another strong example, drawing inspiration from the tragedy of Coriolanus. Coriolanus was a decorated war hero and ultimate defender of Rome turned reluctant politician. His inexperience in the political sphere left him vulnerable to costly mistakes that ultimately transformed him from a hero to a villain. Bret Hart was a popular four-time WWF champion, till losing the title to Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12. When he returned to a volatile World Wrestling Federation in the fall of 1996, Hart lashed out at the moral ambiguity embraced by the audience in his absence. Like Coriolanus, Hart did not change, but the world around him changed. The rules of right and wrong were suddenly shifted without debate or reason. Both Coriolanus and Hart refused to accept the shift. The citizens of Rome turned against their once brave defender and chose to banish him. The WWF fans no longer lent their support to Hart and instead shifted their love to Steve Austin. It was the rejection of the ungrateful masses that ultimately transformed these two once-beloved babyfaces into despised heels. There's no more to be said, but he is banished as enemy to the people and his country. It shall be so. It shall be so. Common cry of curse, whose breath I hate as reeks of the rotten fence, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air. I banish you, and here remain with your uncertainty. Let every feeble rumor shake your hearts, your enemies with nodding of their caps fan you into despair. Have the power still to banish your defenders till at length your ignorance, which finds not till it feels, making but reservation of yourselves, still your own foes deliver you as most abated captives to some nation that won you without blows. Vince McMahon is going to try to talk to a very, obviously, uh, this consonant Bret Hart. Extremely frustrated over what has just happened. Whoa! 
frustrated isn't a goddamn word for it. This is bullshit. Well, we apologize, ladies you and screw gentlemen. me. Everybody screws me. And nobody does a goddamn thing about it. Nobody in the building cares. Nobody in the dressing room cares. So much goddamn injustice around here. I've had it up to here. We apologize, ladies and Everybody gentlemen. Everybody knows it. I know it. Everybody knows it. I should be the World Wrestling Federation champion. Get him out of the ring. Everybody just keeps turning a blind eye. You keep turning a blind eye to it. I got that gorilla monsoon. He turns a blind eye to it. Everybody in that goddamn dressing room knows that I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Cut him off. If you don't like it, tough shit. Any number of Mr. McMahon's villainous plots in the late 90s and early 2000s easily compare to Richard III, perhaps the most cunning and evil villain in all of Shakespeare's writings. Like Richard III, McMahon would take grim pleasure in laying out a devious plot, telling us exactly what he was going to do, and leaving the audience to watch helplessly as his evil games unfurl in the world around them. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front, and now, instead of mounted barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a newt. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking-glass, I, that I'm rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. I, that I'm curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why I, in this week, piping time of peace. Of no delight to pass away the time, unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. The WWF is going to die. I know that. The WWF has cancer because of Ric Flair. Flair's going to kill it. And the kind of cancer Flair gave the WWF is the slow eating 
kind of cancer. It's not quick. I'm not gonna let Rip Blair kill what I created. Me. The WWF is mine. It's mine. I created it. I'm not gonna let Rip Flair kill what I created. Because I'm going to kill what I created. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill my creation. I'm going to inject the WWF with a lethal dose of poison. If anybody's going to kill my creation, I'm going to do it. Me. And the N.W. Shades of Hamlet, Shakespeare's most complex and brooding character, can be found today in AEW's presentation of Darby Allen. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die. It's just that feeling of how quick life can just change. It's that feeling of how everything can get turned upside down. I paint my face because 50% of me is dead inside. The trust for humans, the respect for humans, it's dead. To sleep, no more. And by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. See, I got relentless tattooed on the back of my neck last week. It means never stop, keep moving forward. You know, I get severely, severely depressed if I'm not doing something, if I'm not moving. And it just, it's a drive, it's a hunger, it's a want. I want to be better than you were yesterday. Be all that you can be. Don't settle for others' expectations of you, others' labels of you. Be what you knew you could be. When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, a proud man's contumely. The pangs of despised love, the law's delayed. 
the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bumpkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? But there, the dread of something after death. I felt I wanted an audience to experience my pain. I wanted an audience to see what I would go through and what I'm willing to put myself through. The wrestling gave me that outlet, and I never looked back. But the moment you get a taste of people accepting your craziness, now I can find a place to fit in. People come up to me and they say, you should really tone it down, Darby. Be safe. Unfortunately, I don't know if I have that switch. And does that scare me? Yes. But it's all I've ever known. I've always felt this relentless hunger to just get the most out of life. Because you never know when it's going to happen. The ultimate goal at AEW is to be accepted for me. And that's all I've ever wanted my whole life, is just to be accepted for me. While an author like Shakespeare can pen pages of dramatic prose to describe the pain of a particular hold, or the vengeance in a wrestler's heart, Wrestlers must bring that drama to life using convincing body language and carefully structured matches. On the microphone, a performer uses his ability to communicate to work the audience. In the ring, the drama of a story is predicated on a wrestler's ability to convince the audience that his or her fabricated struggle is in fact real. Specific spots built into a match can highlight a babyface character's motivations or serve as a physical metaphor for their ongoing journey. Heels construct spots to reinforce their character type and create heat with the audience. More than anything else, matches are constructed to exploit the audience's desired outcome. Teasing a desired outcome or the consequences of a different outcome go a long way in manufacturing valuable drama. It's the drama of the struggle that ultimately compels an audience to invest in characters not win-loss records. The play's the thing that ultimately makes the drama in the ring. The drama of pro wrestling storytelling is what ultimately galvanizes the emotional investment in a story. That emotional investment is predicated on compelling characters and compelling conflict, not a carefully crafted veil of reality. When the drama is right, the audience's ability to suspend disbelief organically creates that veil of legitimacy on its own. This is what so many promoters and performers fail to recognize in the wake of kayfabe's exposure. The 1940s proved the most barren period in pro wrestling's history. In 
December of 1941, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the United States officially entered World War II. The pro wrestling business, like everything else across the nation, took a major back seat to the national war effort. But as bleak as things were in the 1940s, the 1950s proved most profitable, thanks to television. Post-World War II pop culture is largely defined by television's influence on American society writ large. The pro wrestling industry was, without question, the biggest benefactor of the 1950s TV boom. The two mediums were virtually made for one another. As it turned out, the stinging exposés and spiteful backlash from the print media did little to actually change the hearts and minds of the masses. Likewise, Jack Pfeffer's banishment for revealing the industry's secrets failed to end his career as intended. The renegade promoter ventured out on his own and enjoyed quite a bit of success by leaning into the performative aspects of the business. Pfeffer ignored kayfabe and promoted a circus-like product based on melodrama and spectacle. He would prove most instrumental in launching the careers of many influential performers like Buddy Rogers, Mildred Burke, and the fabulous Mula. Ironically, Pfeffer understood how meaningless his spiteful revelations proved to be long before those he attempted to destroy ever figured it out. It's the drama that sells the tickets. As long as the emotion of the story is real, it doesn't matter that the punches are pulled. Pro wrestling is no more connected to competition than a production of Shakespeare is to fencing. It's not about the rigorous counting of wins and losses, but about our own relationship with the human condition. And what's more dramatic than that? Next time on The Four Pillars. Spectacle is the fourth and final pillar in the pro wrestling storytelling construct. Spectacle is the proverbial secret sauce of the wrestling business. What is the secret behind this magical phenomenon that lifts us from our seats and makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up? That's next time on The Four Pillars from Wrestling With Art.